Acts chapter number 17. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 16. The Word of God says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not far from every one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we also are also His offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commendeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for your word, for your spirit, and for your Son. I pray, Father, that you would do the work in hearts that only you can accomplish. Lord, we have need this morning to hear from heaven. We have need for you to meet with us. It's not just a want, Lord, it's a need. And were we to be more spiritual, we'd probably see it as a greater need. But God, we plead, even in our ignorance of our true, uh, true needful state this morning, we plead that you'd meet with us and that you'd do a mighty work amongst us. Lord, I pray that you'd reclaim the backslidden. God, that you'd save the sinner. And Lord, that your son would get all the glory in everything that'll take place. Father, we love you this morning. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm interested in the phrase that Paul uses in verse 23 in speaking to the Athenians at Mars Hill. 
He says, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Can I take a few moments this morning and preach to you on the unknown God? Do you know that we live in a very religious society in this day that we live in? There's no question about that. Uh, you could go out into our parking lot, throw a baseball, and uh, chances are you'd probably hit a church, and a decent chance is it'd be a Baptist church. But my greatest fear is that in a society that has grown so familiar with things that are quote-unquote religious, that there is a consciousness to a degree of God or of a deity, but this God that is so touted, so spoken about, you know, everybody blames everything on God. Uh, everything in society, everything good, everything bad, whether God's had a thing to do with it or not, God is always the reason. Uh, we live in a day where men are willing to acknowledge a God to a degree, but He's an unknown God to them. We'll find that Paul's entire message uh, that he preached on Mars Hill centered around this truth of knowing God. And can I ask you this morning, uh, you may be in a... Well, in fact, I know you're in a church house, amen. If I don't know that, I'm really lost, amen. You're in a church house this morning. You probably have a Bible either on your lap or on your bookshelf. You probably at some point may have even had your name on a church roll somewhere. You might have had someone take you into baptismal waters and dunk you and bring you right back up. But this is my question this morning. Do you know God or don't you know God? You know, when I say I know someone, that means something. I mean, I can say I know somebody, but that don't mean they know me. But if I'm to say I know someone, what I'm saying is not only do I know them, but they know me. I not only know God, but as the book of Galatians says, I'm known of God. And there's a lots of folks in this day that we live in that they'll tell you they know God, but they don't know anything about His book. They'll tell you that they know God, but they don't know anything about His Son. They'll tell you that they know God, but they don't know anything about a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, if you came to me and if you said, hey, I know that fellow over there, and I said, tell me something about him, and you said, well, I really can, I'd probably say, are you sure you know him? And this morning, as we sit in the house of God, you may say, oh, I know God. But if I was to say, tell me something about him, you'd say, well, I really don't know what I'd say. I'd have some serious concerns whether you know God or not. Here's a whole group of people that claim to know God, and yet they were worshiping an unknown God even by their own profession. It's a very interesting stage that's set before us here. I think in our modern day that we live in, it's hard for us to fathom. We really have to use our imagination. Uh, the Bible speaks in this passage about them taking Paul uh, to Areopagus. Now, some of y'all said within yourselves, well, that's the strangest Bible. I'm going to name my firstborn son Areopagus. We'll slow down a little bit. Areopagus wasn't the name of a person. It was the name of a place. It was a uh, temple uh, and a court that was there in Athens. It was a large open area. And uh, you'll notice that at the end of our reading, uh, that the Bible speaks of a man named Dionysius who was an Areopagite. Uh, in this place, this court, there would be 12 judges that sat for the purpose of hearing both crimes and new things, new philosophies. They sat basically in a place of judgment. And it was to this place that Paul was brought to preach his message of Jesus Christ and of the resurrection. In a sense, Paul was on trial in our passage before us. Could I say that we live in a day where Jesus Christ is very much on trial in the hearts and minds of those in America? 
Now listen, if you don't believe that, just turn on the news sometime. You'll find uh, 300 million people trying to make their minds up what they believe about Jesus Christ. And you may come here today for food. You may come here for homecoming. You may come here because somebody invited you. You may come here because somebody begged you. But the truth of the matter is, this morning, we're going to have to make a decision about Jesus Christ. So, oh, that's, that's awful pushy, preacher. No, I'm not being pushy. But you see, when you're faced with truth, you have a decision to make. That's just the way it is. You'll either turn away from it, you'll ignore it, or you'll embrace it, you'll obey it, and you'll believe it. We're all faced with truth this morning. I want us to notice three things just very quickly, and then I'll hush and we can go eat. I want you to notice first off the audience that Paul is preaching to in this passage. Notice what it says. Uh, look down in verse number 16. The Bible says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Notice first off the idolatry of the city. Now, uh, some of, you know, we live in a day, and I think this is a good thing, that when we hear the word idolatry, it's in a negative connotation. And let me say that all through the Bible, idolatry is always used in negative connotation. But understand that if you had been there in Athens, I mean, imagine the Apostle Paul. Uh, he is in one of the greatest cultural and philosophical centers in the world. I mean, he's at a place that men long to be. He is at the very heart of everything that is refined, of everything that is sophisticated. But when Paul looks around, he doesn't see the great Greek architecture. He doesn't see the beautiful sculptures. He doesn't see the great art that's around. He doesn't go and sit at the feet of one of these uh, uh, much appreciated, much admired philosophers. Instead, when Paul looks around, he sees a city that is religious but is lost. That's what it means. When it says get holy given over, uh, you know what that means? Holy given over to idolatry. It means it was full of idols. It means everywhere you'd turn, you'd see an idol. In fact, one fellow put it this way. He said, in Athens, you were more apt to find a god, quote unquote, than you were to find a man. Everywhere you go, there was religion. Everywhere you go, somebody was talking about God. You see, when we see this, we have the idea of hedonism and paganism. Uh, when we uh, read this passage, we have the idea of that which is dark and that which is concealed. And I'm not dismissing that. Certainly, in this atmosphere, the true light of the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, had been concealed for a long time. Uh, but what I'm saying is, if you'd looked at it today, I mean, uh, the, the, the Pew Research Foundation would have called Athens a religious city. I mean, if you had uh, read about it in uh, the various magazines, they would have talked about all the art you could see. If you had read the tourist brochure, they would have talked about the art you could see. Uh, they would have talked about the architecture you could see. But they would have talked about all the temples that you could go and visit. I mean, this was the kind of place where you could pick your religion. Oh, my, if we ever live in a day where the message is just pick your religion. Just pick your religion. Just go out and pick you one. Doesn't matter what it is, the world will say. Just go out and pick you one. Doesn't matter whether it's the religion of Islam and of violence and of murder. Doesn't matter if it's the religion of mysticism, of Buddhism. Doesn't matter if it is the religion of pantheism and Hinduism. It doesn't matter what it is. Just go pick you one and you'll be all right. You see, we live in a country today that is wholly given to idolatry. We don't like to admit it, friend. We live in a polite society. In fact, I'd say we don't live in a polite society. We live in a society where political correctness has run amok. And nobody's willing to acknowledge that you can't have but one way to heaven. Now, that's just a common understanding, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the shortest distance between point A and point B is still a straight line. And uh, they can't all be right. 
You can stick all the bumper stickers on your car that say coexist all you want, but they still ain't all the same. We can come up with little slogans. I, I'm not preaching. I've got to be careful. I'll be preaching against bumper stickers. Wouldn't that be silly? But, but it's the message that's conveyed in a lot of these things. And they can say they was born right the first time, but that don't make it so. What I'm saying is this. You can find enough people to agree with you to make you feel comfortable, but that does not mean that you're square with God. We see the idolatry of the city, but I want you to notice, secondly, we see the oddity of the cross. The Bible says that, that Paul preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they said, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods. Oh, can I, can I tell you, it, it, it stirs me this morning. Because if I've ever seen a picture of United States of America in 2014, I see it right now in the book of Acts chapter 17. If I've ever seen a picture of society as we know it, it's in this passage. Because you know what, everybody, you can pick whatever religion you want as long as it isn't Bible Christianity. Isn't that true? Oh, they don't mind this watered-down Christianity that don't pray, that don't worship, that don't shout, that don't, that don't believe the Bible. That doesn't bother anyone. But now you, you get your feet there at the cross of Calvary and you get your eyes on Jesus Christ and you actually start to stand for something, then you're a setter forth of strange gods. Now, the Muslims can come in and behead people on American soil, and that's not a strange god. But we pray at a football game and we're setter forths of strange gods. We're, we're, we're hate mongers for praying in public, right? But Islam is a peaceful religion. Look at all the peace they've got in the Middle East. Don't you long for that? Well, I wasn't going to preach this way this morning, but if God's going to lead me this way, I'll preach this way. I mean, listen, uh, it's a peaceful religion is what they tell me, and yet it's always been perpetuated at the end of the sword and by the blood of its victims, always. But we're the setter forth of strange gods. We're the setter forth of strange gods. All of the hedonism, all of the sensuality, all of the wickedness and worldliness that is humanism in this day that we live in, it can absolutely destroy the foundations of the home. It can redefine what love is and what a relationship is. It can redefine what the boundaries of morality and spirituality are. And that's fine. But now you tell someone that we've got the Word of God and you're a setter forth of strange gods. I'm just saying the cross of Calvary is an odd thing to this world that we live in. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm saying Paul was in a place where uh, they spent their time with nothing else other than to hear and to tell some new thing. I mean, they were used to it. They'd heard everything that you could hear. But, oh, they'd never heard anything like the cross of Calvary. They had heard about the gods that demanded the lives of uh, his worshipers. They'd heard about the gods uh, that demanded the obedience of those that would attain salvation. But here comes Paul preaching that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And they stopped a minute, and they backed up a minute, and they put it in reverse for a minute, and they said, whoa, he's a setter forth of strange gods. I'd tell you that he is a setter forth of a strange God, because that is foreign to this world that we live in. 
We live in a world where religion is summarized in what man can do for God. But Bible Christianity shows us what God can do for man. Bible Christianity is not man's reach for God. It's God's reach for man. It is not man living up to God's standard, but it is God condescending through the person of His Son to live a perfect life and be made sin for you and I, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That is a strange God in this world that we live in. Now, if you want to work for your religion, you can find plenty of plenty of them. If you want to get there through baptism, quote unquote, now you're never going to get there through baptism. You know that. If you've read the Bible, you know that. If you've read the Bible, you know that. You know that nothing can avail except the blood of Jesus. But now if you've listened to the priest, the priest will tell you that the baptismal waters can get you in. If you listen to a lot of preachers, they'll tell you that the baptismal waters can get you in. But that isn't in the Bible. In fact, they had to try and change the Bible to make it seem that way. Oh, I'm about to... Charlie, I'm about to run everyone off. You know that? It's a good thing we got food or everybody would have left already. Some of you, you could open your NIV Bibles and turn to Acts chapter number 8 and you'd see where they took out Acts 8, 37. It got cold in here. Did you feel that? Somebody kicked the air conditioner on. You say, why does that matter, preacher? Because that is one of the key verses proving uh, that baptism is after salvation and only for the believer. Philip looked at the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, or the Ethiopian eunuch looked at Philip and said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now, your NIV tells you that the next thing they did is they climbed off that chariot, went in and got baptized. And uh, this Ethiopian eunuch, he'd never been born again. But that King James Bible that you've got, it tells you the truth about it. You know what? Philip looked at him and said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Why are they so obsessed with trying to take out the proof of baptismal regeneration? Because uh, the largest denomination, quote-unquote, of Christianity, quote-unquote, in this world that we live in will tell you that if you'll just get sprinkled, if you'll just join the church, if you'll just say a few words, if you'll just eat a wafer, then that's enough to get you to heaven. They've got to try to change the Word of God to make it appear that way. I don't understand why this King James Bible was enough for 400 years, and now all of a sudden we can't understand it. We got real ignorant real quick, didn't we? Oh, I'll move on. I'm preaching on Acts chapter 17 this morning. We see the oddity of the cross. The cross of Christ is offensive to the world that we live in. For it declares that a person must, uh, that a person is a sinner and that they must acknowledge that they are a sinner if they are to come to know Jesus Christ. So we see the oddity of the cross. But notice, thirdly, we see the attitude of the critics. Who were these critics? What does the Bible say about them? Look at verse number 19. Uh, the Bible says, or verse number 18, excuse me. The Bible says, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Other some, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is, for thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. Two groups are spoken of in our passage. One is the Epicureans. They represented the facet of society that is reprobate. The Epicureans, uh, believe it or not, were followers of a man named Epicurus, who had lived about 300 years before Christ. 
They were essentially atheistic in a practical sense. They believed that God did exist, but they didn't believe he created everything. They didn't believe he had anything to do uh, with the everyday of life. For all practical intents and purposes, they were atheistic. And so they believed that their satisfaction and their happiness could only be derived uh, through yielding to uh, sensuality and yielding to the desires and the passions and the appeals of the flesh. And so in a lot of ways, they represent secular humanism in the day that we live in. I know everyone wants to talk about the moral atheist. I know that. And you talk to atheists, and they'll always talk about the moral atheist. Uh, But if an atheist is moral, his morality is only a figment of his imagination, for it has no grounding and foundation. He can say, oh, well, it's about the consensus of society. I try to take care of me and not bother anybody else. But funny thing about it, friend, you live long enough in this world, you're going to bump into situations where you'll have to choose between you and someone else. And then what will your morality be? Uh, They can say it's the consensus of society. And that's all good and well, but here's the problem. Society is a depraved thing that is consistently spiraling downward. Uh, That means whatever society accepts, they will accept. Uh, That's not morality. That's self-preservation socially. So they can say that they're a moral atheist, but they're really not a moral atheist because morality denotes the idea of boundaries. And the atheist has no boundaries because his boundaries are defined by the social context which he is in. If that social context changes, his boundaries change, and there are really no boundaries at all. The Epicureans represented this group that deny and reject a creator God. And we live in a day, I don't know how it is, except through the depravity of society, that what was a theory, and a poor theory that is now accepted as gospel truth in the public school system that you send your kids to, they teach your child, they don't teach them the option of creationism, and if they do, they teach it with a sneer and with a snicker. They don't teach creationism. Instead, a theory, and by the way, if we want, and and I'm, oh... It's, it's about time to eat. I'm really having to try this morning, amen. I mean, I'm really having, I, I mean, I, oh, I want to preach about four other sermons. And let me tell you something. <laughs> let me tell you something this morning. Uh, if we wanted to, we could spend an hour just blowing holes in that theory. We could. Do we, we, we could talk about uh, something like, hey, uh, why is there no missing link? You can talk about Sasquatch if you want to. But even beyond that, it's not that they've not found one missing link. It's that they should have found multitudes of missing links if there was such thing, because one of anything cannot sustain a species. Or we could talk about something like irreducible complexity. Do you know that your human eyeball has over a hundred parts to it? If you were to remove any one of these parts, your human eyeball could not function. And so if it just gradually evolved and developed over billions of years, uh, then your eyeball would have been a useless appendage that should have been done away with through the process of evolution a long time ago. And, and, and that's not the only part of your body that has irreducible complexity. But we're not preaching on evolution this morning. It's okay. You see, there's a whole group of society that believes in a reprobate morality, that there is no God, and that if there is, he doesn't care about us. Then we see a second group. They're called Stoics. They were followers of a man by the name of Zenoa, and uh, they were the opposite end of the spectrum. The Epicureans represented the reprobate, but the Stoics represented the religious. 
They believed that God very much was concerned with what went on in society. In fact, they believed in a thing that a lot of people use this terminology lightly in the state that we live in, but they believed that everything was ruled and governed by fate, that even God himself was ruled and governed by fate, and that their greatest virtue would be uh, the self-sacrifice, the self-denial and obedience and adherence uh, to their form of morality and righteousness. In other words, if they could be good enough, they'd make it. That's what they believed. And let me say that that is the society on the religious side that we live in. And it seems as though there's a consistent tug between the reprobate and the religious in the society that we live in. If we can just get this vote. Can I say that you cannot legislate a person's heart right? I'm not, and don't misunderstand me this morning, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to do what we can do to make sure that we put righteous men in political office. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do what we should do, uh, are able to do, uh, to try to make sure that our country and our society and our county and our city uh, stays as godly as it possibly can. I'm not dismissing that out of hand, but I'm merely saying this, that it's not the White House that's going to fix it. It's not the White House. Uh, it's not the president that's going to fix it. It's not the congressman that's going to fix it. Only one thing that's going to fix it, and he's not a president, he's not a congressman, he's a king. He's the only one that can fix this mess that we're in. All the religion, you have these two opposite sides constantly pushing and pulling at each other. And the whole time, God is not given a thought. Oh, he's mentioned. He's mentioned in political speeches. He's thanked on uh, sports uh, programs. He has uh, had his tip to him uh, at uh, music awards programs. But at the end of the day, he's the unknown God. He's just being worshipped just to be on the safe side. We see the audience. Notice, secondly, we see the sermon. I want you to notice a few things that Paul preached to him. And the first thing I want to note is he preached the idea of revelation. Now, not revelation in the sense of the last book of the Bible, although you could make that application. But what I mean is Paul preached that God could be known. I don't think we realize how radical that is in this day that we live in. If men really believed that God could be known, then we would not have the multi-religious society that we live in today. Do you know why it is that they don't have a problem uh, if you ta- if you call it Good Friday when you take it off work? Do you know why? Because there's others that are going to call it something else. And they all operate under this pretense that, well, at the end of the day, no one can really know. No one can really know. At the end of the day, no one can know whether they're square with God or not. Isn't that the mantra of society? At the end of the day, who are we really to say which holy book is correct? At the end of the day, who are we to say whether it's Jesus Christ or whether it's Muhammad or whether it's Buddha or whether it's Confucius? Who are we to say such a thing? And I'd say to you in this day that we live in, you and I are nobody to say anything about that. But I would have you know... That God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake by the mouth of prophets, hath in these last days revealed himself unto us by his Son. Oh, yes, friend, we can know who God is. We can not just know who he is, we can know him. We don't have to wonder. God's revealed himself to us in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. God's given us his word to dictate and tell us who and what God exactly is. And I would have you know that in the day that we live in, that'll tell you that you can't really know, that'll tell your children that whatever they choose is fine because nobody really knows. The whole world can scream it from the tops of their lungs, but God has...
has still given us His Word. God has still given us His Son. God has still given us the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And your children and my children one day will stand before God accountable because all these things were given to them and they made a decision either to accept Him or to reject Him. All of society can be upset about that, but it won't change it. All of society can call us narrow-minded. God help us that we have been so brainwashed today in society that if we claim that we have a relationship with God, we're called narrow-minded, and we get all limp-wristed and apologetic over it. That's pitiful. Is our Christianity not made out of anything stronger than that? That we'd bow our knee to secular humanism? We'd bow our knee to the construct of religion that this world has uh, has fabricated. God help us that we don't have more about us uh, than uh, to stand up and say to them, I know Jesus Christ. I know He's my Savior. I know I've been forgiven. I know God's Word is true. I know, I know, I know, not because of who I am, but because of who He is and what He has done. He preached a revelation. You see it there in verses 24 through 29. He says, this God, this God, He's the one I declare unto you. The God that made the earth, the God that made the world, made all things therein. The God, uh, if we'll seek after Him, if we'll feel after Him, we can find Him because He's not far from us. And in this day, can I tell you, can I tell you this morning that you may sit there in your seat and think to yourself, Oh, preacher, I just don't know. I just don't know. At the end of the day, preacher, I don't know if I've been saved. I don't know if I have a relationship with God. Can I give you some good news this morning? If you're willing to find yourself at the foot of the cross, confess yourself a sinner before God, turn from dependence upon yourself, and ask God to forgive you and save you. You can know that you're saved this morning. You can know. He preached a revelation to them. But notice not only revelation, he preached repentance to them. He preached repentance to them. He says, God used to wink at this, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. I'm not going to talk about we could. We could talk about what he means by God winked at that. But can I just put it this way? We don't live in darkness now. We don't live in darkness now. If you're here today, if you're here today, you've heard the truth half a dozen times just in the message this morning. If you're here, grab a Bible that sits in front of you. You have the truth. God won't wink at that anymore. You're accountable. I'm accountable. Now, if we really believe that Bible like we say we do, that's going to mean something to us. Now, if it's just lip service, and, and if it's just hypocrisy, it won't mean anything to us. But you better get it straight this morning uh, that one day you will be accountable for God, and your choice right now is to turn from yourself and turn to the Savior. Repentance. Notice, thirdly, he preached a reckoning. Look at what it says, verse number, I believe it's verse 30. He said, there's coming a day when he's going to judge the world by the man whom he hath appointed. Yeah, there is that day coming. The Bible speaks of it for the lost man in the book of Revelation in chapter number 20. It's called the great white throne judgment. When you'll stand before God and give an account, and on that day, you won't miss that appointment. On that day, there's no appeals. On that day, there uh, there is no one to stand in your place. All of this time, right now, listen to me, right now, you've got someone to stand in your place. But if you reject him on that day, you'll have no one to stand in your place. On that day, the rejected Christ will become the rejecting Christ.
And the one who you've spurned his love and his forgiveness for lo these many years, the one that has knocked at your heart's door countless times, but you were too busy, you were too distracted, you were too self-involved, you were too prideful, that same Jesus Christ will be the one to condemn you to eternal damnation. There's coming a day of reckoning. Let me just throw this in there. For those of us that have been saved, there's coming a day of reckoning for us too. I don't believe in a general resurrection. You say, preacher, why don't you believe in a general resurrection? Because the Bible don't teach a general resurrection. That's why. The Bible teaches two distinct resurrections. Resurrection unto life and resurrection unto death. And for those of us that have been born again, the Bible says uh, that one of these days in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the Lord himself uh, shall descend from heaven. The Bible says that we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That's our resurrection. And on that day, the Bible teaches, we'll stand accountable before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. Not for it to be decided where we'll spend eternity, but for us to give an account as a servant unto him, as one who is owned by him, who has been purchased at the cross of Calvary by his blood. There's coming a day. Are you ready for that day? We see his sermon. Then I want you to finally notice the response, and I'm done. I promise you. I said that 30 minutes ago, but now I mean that. I want you to notice the response. We see three groups of people. First off, I want you to notice the profane. The Bible says that some mocked. They said, what will this babbler say? That word babbler is very interesting. You know what that word literally means? That word literally means a gatherer of seeds. You say, preacher, why did they translate it babbler if it literally means a gatherer of seeds? Because they weren't calling Paul a gatherer of seeds. You see, that was a turn of phrase. That was a uh, that was a metaphor that they would use in that day for someone that lived off of another person. When they spoke of a gatherer of seeds, they were speaking about people that would go through the marketplaces and they would follow folks that were walking and carrying corn and things of that sort and they would scoop up and gather up the seeds or the corn that would fall out behind them and that's how they survived. And so when they were calling Paul a babbler, what they were saying is he's a charlatan living off of the hard work of other people. And that was their excuse for mocking. Can I tell you that and listen, I, I love everybody here. I, I really do. I really do. You say you don't know me well. Well, that that's probably why I like you. Amen. Uh, but <laughs> that's why you like me. So, so I, I promise you. I, I mean, I, I don't. I don't sense that there's an animosity or something. If there is, you're real good at hiding it because I feel liberty this morning. But can I tell you something? You can hate me, and you'll still have to answer to Christ one day. You know what they were saying? They were saying, ignore this man's message. He's a hypocrite. Now, first off, I think we'd all have to say Paul wasn't a hypocrite. But even beyond that, even if Paul had been a hypocrite, that didn't change the truth of his message. You know, I know lots of folks. You know them, too. Maybe you've been this person at one time. Maybe you're this person right now that'll say, I don't go to church anymore. Too many hypocrites. Let me tell you something. If you're going for the hypocrites, it wasn't no wonder you quit anyway. If you was going for the one that was perfect and immaculate and majestic and magnificent and exalted and praised and honored, you would have kept going. Every church, I don't care what church it is, full of hypocrites, so's the Walmart, but that don't keep you away from there. You know why you go to the Walmart? Because you need something. So you'll wander through. You'll wander through some of the oddest people in society. Am I right? They got websites devoted to it. These folks are just so weird. People, listen, 
people dress worse to Walmart than they do going to bed. Now, what does that say? But you'll go there. You know why? Because you need something. You know why you quit on church? You didn't think you needed it. Ooh. Ooh. You quit on church because you thought you didn't need it. You say, what do I do, preacher? God commandeth all men everywhere to repent and get right. Wonderful thing about the double doors of most churches, they swing both ways. That's the wonderful thing about the house of God. God hath devised means, we preached on it last week, that his banished be not expelled from him. There's a way home. Can I give you a homecoming message this morning? There's a way home. You pass through the blood of Jesus at the throne room of grace and ask forgiveness, and he's faithful and just to cleanse you uh, from all unrighteousness and to forgive you. And those double doors swing both ways. You can come in just like you went out. Folks say, well, you know, he's a hypocrite, so I reject the message. Well, whether the preacher's a hypocrite or not, the message is still truth if it's come out of the Word of God. We see that some were profane. They mocked. They said, who cares what this babbler says? He's a hypocrite anyway. Notice number two. We see some uh, were profane, but others were procrastinators. What'd they say? We'll hear thee again of this matter. And what they said? We will hear thee again of this matter. I have no record of Paul ever going back to Athens. They said, we will hear thee again of this matter. And, you know, that's lots of folks, man. They know the truth. They know what's right. They know they need to be saved. But they say, we will hear thee again of this matter. We will hear thee again. It's interesting because you know when it's talking about this group. I don't think it's just talking about the average person out that was in the audience. I think it was speaking specifically about these 12 judges that sat in judgment, whose job it was to make up their mind about what Paul said. And some of them said, he's a babbler, ignore him. But others said, one of these days, I'll listen to him again. One of these days, I'll hear again. Funny thing about it, we have no record of the Athenians ever getting to hear it again. I don't know when your last time will be, but I know it's coming. It might be this morning. It might be the next time or the next or a hundred times after that. But here's the stark truth of it. I don't know, and you don't either. You don't either. We see that some were procrastinators. But thank God, verse 34 says, some made professions. There were some that believed. Can I encourage you this morning? If you're, if you're a Christian, if you witness, if you talk to folks about Christ, some will make fun of you, some will put you off, but you just keep plugging away because there's some out there that will believe. There's some out there that will accept. And this morning, what category are you in with the truth that's been given? You say, preacher, I've already been saved you've already been saved, then it ought to stir your heart as you see the picture of the society we live in, of your friends, of your family members that are in need of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you'd say, preacher, I don't know. If I was to be honest, if I died right now, I don't know where I'd go. Can I tell you, you can know. Anybody that tells you that you can't, that just means they don't. But I know you can know too. You can know based upon the promise of God and the truth of His Word, you can be saved.